Well, thank you. Um, Edward has done a, a very great job in laying out the history and as well as the context. Uh, I will try to narrow in on two very important um, issues. One, the protection of civilians as a core part of the UN's business. And secondly, uh, what needs to change um, as we go forward with South Sudan as, as one example. Between 1990 and 2010, the number and intensity of conflict declined steeply and steadily through peaceful settlement. Interestingly, we also saw a reduction of conflict in Africa. It didn't seem like it, but that's the statistics, very clearly. Political settlements were achieved and were often accompanied by international peace support efforts, as Edwards was referring to and including uh, those led by the United Nations through peacekeeping missions. Conflicts were at a historic low, and the vast majority of the world's population were at peace. Yet, hard-won decades of progress in reducing conflict are now at grave risk. In the last three years, the number of armed conflicts has risen for the first time, with a corresponding increase in battle deaths. This change is primarily driven by new conflicts in the Middle East and in North Africa. At the same time, some conflicts in Africa are becoming increasingly intractable, and there's a risk of relapse in several places. This is a huge challenge for the United Nations, whose mandate is promoting peace and security. And as the UN approaches its 70th anniversary, the scale of this challenge also shows in numbers. Not only has the UN peace operations reached record numbers itself, with a record high of peacekeepers deployed, if I'm not mistaken, it's 148,000 soldiers deployed, but this is even more important, more than 90% of all peace operations, whether political missions or those with blue helmets, are deployed in countries where there is no peace to keep. And this is new. And this changed nature of conflict is confronting the organization with massive and unique challenges. Armed conflicts are more complex than ever. The categorizations of interstate and intrastate conflict have blurred. Regional, regional dynamics play a major role in influencing conflicts, often through proxies, making them more intractable to resolve. Asymmetric and extremist violence is spreading with the UN becoming a target in more and more places. <coughs> Transnational illicit power structures are also embedding themselves in these conflicts, providing them with funds, with weapons, with fighters. More conflicts are now taking place in middle-income countries. They are no longer the poor man's fate. So it is really a changed landscape we are facing. And with a changed landscape, we can't continue doing business as usual. And the additional challenges, this is hitting the most vulnerable. Despite the fact that the vast majority of the world's population still is at peace globally, we now are watching more and more children, women and men die. We are finding uh, more and more civilians and vulnerable people be subject to horrific violence um, and we're seeing sexual violence as a pervasive tactic of war, deliberate targeting of the most vulnerable. So this is an additional part
part of this complex picture. We are at a historic high of more than 50 million people being displaced internally or living as refugees. Also another record. Some 70% of the world's internally displaced are women and children. Again, the most vulnerable are the ones suffering the most. And the humanitarian responders at this day are stretched to near breaking point because of the massive humanitarian crisis we're in the middle of. They're now tackling, I think it's four level three crises at the same time. In my time in UNICEF, I was in charge of humanitarian operations. There were usually one. If we were really unlucky, there was one. <laughs> now there's almost four at, at the same time. Level four is really massive, massive crisis. So the UN, not only the peace and security part, but also humanitarian part, they were all facing an incredible challenge when it's now commemorating its 70th uh, anniversary. It is also in this landscape that the UN Secretary General has chosen to appoint a UN high-level panel to review all peace operations, both political and those with blue helmets. 15 years after the famous Brahimi report was launched, the world has changed so much and the UN is under such pressure that a new review is necessary. I'm a member of this high-level panel, which is chaired by José Ramos Jota, Nobel laureate and former president of Timor-Leste, and it is scheduled to hand over uh, its report in a few weeks' time. So we're in the middle of the finals of our work. This will also give the United Nations an opportunity to handle this report in the coming General Assembly during its 70th anniversary celebrations. So the question is going to be, will the United Nations, its 193 member states now, face up to the challenge? Because business as usual is no longer uh, possible. Protection of civilians then is uh, the hallmark of peacekeeping and a very key part of what the UN is doing. It's always been one of the toughest challenges and even more so as this critical task has taken center stage in the UN peacekeeping operations. After Srebrenica and Rwanda during the 90s, when the UN was perceived to having failed, having been, been standing by as civilians were killed, the Secretary General of the time, Kofi Annan, established the Brahimi panel. And the panel was charged with coming up with new proposals on how the UN could deliver better. And among many of its critical and groundbreaking recommendations were reforms of the UN system to enable the organization to deliver on protection of civilians. And since then, almost all peacekeeping operations have been charged with this responsibility. And that should, the rationale has been since then that peacekeeping operations should never stand by while civilians are at risk. The first mission to get this mandate was Sierra Leone, in 1999. We know, though, that the UN struggled immensely at the outset in Sierra Leone, and only when the UK came in with additional forces, a proper expansion and deployment of a major peacekeeping operations was po peace operation was possible. Um, after that, we have to note that Sierra Leone has been one of the success stories of UN peacekeeping. Um, and uh, it's clear that um, in this case, 
the UN system has been able to adapt to the needs of the country through sequential types of operations, very, very tailored to country circumstances, and it slowly um, changed its presence until only the UN country team was back present, and it made sure that the political side of this was monitored closely. Um, since uh, Sierra Leone, almost all peacekeeping operations have had this strong protection of civilians mandate. We can note, though, from the Sierra Leone case, but also from others, that we are seeing generally that small countries with large peacekeeping operations, Timor-Leste is another, are more likely to succeed than missions deployed in large countries with difficult logistic and infrastructure challenges and where the protection challenge are is significant in remote areas of the country. Here we are seeing more, much more intractable problems for UN peacekeeping, whether it's DRC, recently Mali, South Sudan where I was, Sudan also, and there are many examples of this. So scale matters in relation to the chance of success in peacekeeping. POC has usually been implemented in three tiers um, the last few years, which has been the policy of, of the UN, uh, meaning the first tier, the political track. Try to prevent conflict from breaking out. Do what you can to strengthen the country's own security forces to be able to handle the challenges. Number two, if that's not possible, uh, physical protection through the UN, UN's own peacekeepers uh, is then the second, which is use of force. Number three, a protective environment, which actually covers both humanitarian action, protection cluster, human rights, the issues that uh, Edward was also talking about. So these three tiers have been the guiding principle for most peacekeeping operations in the last few years, trying to make sure that the UN delivers. However, we have also seen many cases in the media where there has been uh, accusations that the UN stood by. Not all of the stories you read are correct, I have to say. I was subject to some of this. Um, but we have an independent evaluation uh, that was issued just uh, last year, which shows and documents that in many cases um, the UN peacekeeping operations haven't been able to protect civilians quickly and robustly enough. And there are many cases documented where the UN stood by. So the, uh, although I do have issues with some of the methodology of this evaluation report, I won't get into that with you. Uh, I do think it has, to be, uh, um, it has to be done slightly differently if you're going to have a credible analysis. But still, it tells a story that we do have some ways to go. Um, and so then I come to South Sudan, where this was a major challenge. Protection of civilians, when I was special representative of the Secretary General, SRSG there, um, as the mission started, protection of civilians were, was the key and a, a really at the heart of the mandate of UNMIS, the mission in South Sudan, in support of the world's youngest nation. Uh, and since its establishment, um, we were guided by the POC our own POC strategy, and we operated uh, along those three tiers. Um, meaning assisting the government on protection issues, trying to help them deliver for their own people, uh, but not least conflict mitigation and prevention, which is absolutely the best thing you can do to protect civilians, prevent the violence from happening. 
Um, we also worked closely with the protection cluster on tier three um, and tried to make sure there was a protective environment for vulnerable civilians. But when that was not possible, uh, we engaged uh, with our use of force on deterrence of violence through deployment and patrols and trying to protect civilians from imminent threat. But it was a huge, uh, difficult task. Um, just prior to the crisis, all the way up to December 2013, for one and a half years, we operated with immense challenges in the, PO in the POC mandate. 60% of South Sudan uh, is inaccessible for six to eight months. There is no all-weather roads in the most critical areas where civilians are at risk. And clearly, with the assets we had, uh, we, we uh, had to fly into most of these areas, very limited possibilities to land. And so basically where the intercommunal violence was going on in a cycle of violence, really horrible, thousands of, 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 um, of civilians at risk, major attacks, tit for tat. Uh, for a mission to be able to handle that in an area called the Sud in Zhongli State, the Sud is a famous swampy territory which in itself is the size of England. Um, we had uh, three to four thousand infantry. Uh, for any military person, you know that that number can protect maybe three airstrips, but not more. So the resources were very inadequate, mobility assets inadequate, uh, capabilities very limited. So I have said this uh, both to the Security Council but also uh, publicly that um, the uh, challenges related to protection of civilians in South Sudan were grossly underestimated and the resources were totally inadequate for us to be able to deliver on the mandate. And this is not a unique story. So this is one of the major challenges we have um, in UN uh, protection of civilians work. Nevertheless, we did deliver uh, on several occasions. And in Pibo, in Zhongli State, for example, we helped prevent an attack of six to 8,000 armed youth marching in military formation to attack civilians in, in this particular uh, location. We managed to prevent that attack from happening, but still 612 people lost their lives as they marched towards this location and as they went uh, and broke out in different um, formations. Uh, but we also did foot patrols, tried to create a protective environment when there was attacks against civilians. Uh, also there, we saved a number of lives. We opened our gates in those situations so those who were um, in great uh, danger could seek refuge uh, at the bases. These were um, smaller numbers, hundreds up to 1,200. But still, the uh, cycle of violence uh, we were not able to stop despite enormous efforts on the peace and prevention side. And then this story carried us to uh, December 2013, when it exploded. When the crisis in the country, the world's newest country, happened. Many of you probably know um, the crisis, but let me just in brief say this was a political crisis, a political one. In the SPLM, the ruling party in the world's youngest country, it turned violent. And with that, it turned ethnic. So it wasn't originally an ethnic conflict, but it turned ethnic, with thousands of people killed. Um, by now, 
15 months into the conflict, it has been classified as a civil war and 1.5 million people have been displaced, half a million uh, refugees and enormous humanitarian uh, uh, consequences. Significant attempts were made, despite some of the stories that you might have heard, uh, to, to prevent this crisis from happening. More than a year before the violence erupted, processes of dialogue, um, political solutions were pushed within the leadership. Committees were discussing solutions to the crisis. And in the, month before, the months before, uh, as late July onwards, um, Regional leaders were mobilized to engage with the SPLM leadership, both from Ethiopia, Kenya, the ANC, etc. I engaged, but it was all in vain. We could not solve the, the, the crisis. Uh, then uh, it erupted, uh, and the violence that took place and that unfolded, I think, despite most of us knowing it could have a violent impact, none of us expected, and not the South Sudanese either, the speed, the scope, and the scale. Uh, of what happened. It is unheard of in South Sudanese history. Um, so, with these limited resources, we had thousands of civilians fleeing for their lives in Juba, where we had two bases. They crowded outside the gates during the light and in the morning hours. There were several thousand. At that time, we had 150 soldiers in Juba. Uh, protecting two, two bases. So they were basically there to protect the gates and the bases of UN staff. So there was no way we could engage in protecting civilians through, um, uh, through engaging with the fighting forces. We also didn't have a mandate from the Security Council to engage in a civil war, basically. So we didn't have an enforcement mandate, we had a protection mandate. And these are two very different things. To have a Enforcement mandate is to engage directly uh, with the fighting forces. So we had to choose the default option, which was do we open the gates and let them in, or do we let them remain there at the risk of being killed? And it was, the violence was raging in the area. So of course we opened the gates. There was absolutely no other alternative. It was a default last resort option, but it was the only option we could, we had to, to, to save people's lives. There's no doubt also that this decision also helped to stem the cycle of violence because it was about to go out of control entirely. The gravity and the scale uh, of the atrocities committed in Juba, but also elsewhere in the country later, as the fighting spread has been clearly documented by our human rights investigators and several reports have been issued uh, where uh, it is very clear what went on. The violence then spread to the northeast of the country and civilians were in the crossfire. UN base after UN base opened its gates and the numbers swelled. And as the forces took and retook control of towns and state capitals, Civilians from different ethnic backgrounds went in and out, fled to the bases. And the numbers soon multiplied. And within five months, we had 100,000 people within our UN bases. Overcrowded, muddy, uh, very, very poor conditions, um, and not anything people would like to endure. And the, f the fact that people remained in the bases and didn't go out and didn't dare go out 
for me, is a sign of the gravity of the ethnic violence. They were not safe. They did not feel safe. Um, and so we were in a situation where we had to handle um, an immense challenge, also from a humanitarian perspective. Within 36 hours, we got more troops to at least be able to protect our bases better and make sure that we didn't face a Srebrenica scenario where actually uh, the bases were attacked uh, in a way that killed many. However, um, we did have a couple of attacks on bases and we did have civilians and our own staff killed in these situations, but we did manage to protect 100,000. Still, there is 100,000 uh, in, more than 100,000 in the bases. And as late as last week, 800 more came into our base in Unity as a consequence of the fighting going on there. No, in Malakal. Um, so we chose to do something that has not been done in UN history before. There has been several uh, cases of civilians coming into the gates of 50, 60, 100 or 200, but not at this scale. However, we didn't only do that. Um, there was also active protection measures taken by our troops um, in a different way. In Malakal, which is a state capital, and in Bentu, when civilians were hiding in hospitals, churches, and mosques, they thought they were safe. In South Sudanese history, they had always been safe uh, in these more holy places or saving lives places, but this time they were not. Uh, forces entered into these locations and killed civilians. So more than, uh, when we discovered that they were not safe, more than 400 civilians were attract, extracted and rescued from these locations in Bentu under fire, where the peacekeepers went out under fire to take them out. And a safe corridor was established for additionally 1,000 people to get into safety, into our bases. In Malakal, more than 1,500 people were rescued from several churches and brought to safety through a humanitarian corridor to our base. Um, so there were actions taken uh, that saved thousands of lives, but in this case also lives that were uh, at grave risk. Um, of course, when this crisis happened, the Security Council decided immediately to give us more resources on the 23rd of December, they, uh, they decided to provide 5,500 more troops and more assets, etc. But what happened in reality? Well, uh, after five months, we had one-fifth of the resources we were promised. After six months, one, a little bit more, but not much. And even a year after, still a lot of what we had been promised were not given. What does this mean? Well, the troops came too late and much slower than expected. The military capacities, force multipliers, etc., are very difficult to mobilize. The formed police units were totally inadequate. These are police with arms because they were necessary to use in the camps and in the bases. Also, the surge of civilian capacities faced difficulties. So it shows systemic challenges and issues for the UN in facing up to sudden crises search is not being done with speed at all. These are among the things we are looking at in the panel that I am um, serving on. Um, another thing that I wanted to highlight um, is the unique uh, cooperation 
were the humanitarians. At the outset, when the crisis happened, actually many of the humanitarians were extracted and evacuated from the areas where fighting was ongoing. So as civilians flooded into our, our gates and into the bases, only the mission staff was left for several weeks in some of the locations. And they had to provide water uh, and what else could be given to the IDPs, to those who had fled. An enormous challenge. Um, and they did a heroic effort, I have to say. They were the last respondents and they worked around the clock with children dying, mothers saving, uh, mothers giving birth in the middle of the bases. I mean, it was unbelievable. While fighting was raging around. Then, following that, we got the humanitarians back in and a unique cooperation was established. I don't know how many of you know the humanitarian uh, uh, principles, but very, very few humanitarians would, would like to work with military. I mean, it's really a firewall is critical for most humanitarian operators to retain impartiality. And this time, we, for the first time in history, I think, saw ICRC and Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, work within military bases of the United Nations to respond to civilian needs. First time in history. And they're still there. And we have established a unique cooperation with the humanitarian respondents to try to make sure that their principles are protected as they help. But for them, the imperative of saving lives were more important than their principles. And I really thank them for that. So they have continued to help save civilians' lives throughout. And when the cholera epidemic came to South Sudan or broke out in, in large scale um, uh, in South Sudan, it was not caused by uh, the peacekeepers at all. Ref Haiti, uh, actually it came uh, from other neighborhoods in Juba. And we were among the safest locations in the country the UN bases, despite these horrible conditions, from cholera. So cholera came much later to the bases, but ended up then being, of course, a huge and Herculean effort uh, for all the humanitarian respondents to prevent our people, the one we, ones we protected, from also getting another disaster uh, in their hands. So a, many, a, a huge effort and, and a huge challenge. Um, and I will not get into the, the implications of this. Of course, when you have 100,000 people in bases, all the usual problems that happen in cities of 100,000 happen in the bases. So you will have violence, you will have uh, problems of tension, intercommunal tensions, you will have crime, you will have smuggling, you will have drinking. So a lot of critical challenges had to be managed. Uh, but um, I have been asked by many later, with all these problems that happened, people wading in mud during the rainy season, incredible challenges, would you have done the same if you were faced with this decision today? My answer is absolutely yes, because otherwise it's very likely that very many of these people would have been killed. So the only option we had was to do what we did. But now, of course, one of the most critical things we have to do is to try to help them return to their neighborhoods. For that to happen, they need to trust peace. So we need to see the South Sudanese leaders deliver at the negotiation table. But they also need to see a trust being built between the government and the people that are still not 
feeling safe enough to go out. And we need to see a significant effort in trying to build safe neighborhoods and communities. And here, of course, the police is going to be critical. The South Sudanese police are not trusted by uh, particularly these segments of the population that have fled. Um, and so building that trust over time is going to be an incredibly important um, uh, task. Here, the UN will need to be present as a third party to foster um, trust, to monitor developments and to make sure that nothing happens to civilians that, that come out. So this is a very long-term and sequential process, but it needs to happen and it needs to start very soon. Now, what has happened in the UN? Uh, well, opening the gates is clearly a last resort. Uh, it has been um, a last resort for us, and as such, uh, it has been seen as one way for the UN to avoid standing by when civilians are under imminent threat. It has now been strongly supported by the Secretary General, the Deputy Secretary General. It is seen as a follow-up to the Human Rights Upfront Initiative that Edward was talking about, and it's seen as something we, we need to do if you have no other options left. Um, so in that way, South, Sudani, South Sudan has shown that it's possible to do this, even with the lacking of resources um, and with peacekeepers who don't have what they need to be able to, to, to protect um, out there. Now the surge is supposed to enable the mission to be out there in the communities to protect civilians as we originally were supposed to do. So this is an opportunity also for reflection uh, for the high-level panel that I'm a member of. And um, we are now in a situation where South Sudan um, at independence um, never, never expected uh, a situation like this. And now with the disaster of the last 15 months, many have, um, uh, with the benefit of hinsight, uh, started saying uh, that the problem was that the country never should have become independent in the first place. And when I'm faced with that uh, statement, I usually say, please remember that the alternative to the civil war that we're seeing raging the country now uh, would not have been peace, but it would have been a continuation of Africa's longest civil war, the one between the SPLMA and Khartoum or Sudan. So whichever way we turn, there would be violence and war. And so this was an attempt to stop that war, but it turned the way it did. It's a man-made disaster, and it's, it's the SPLM leadership that has to take collective responsibility across all factions for what has happened. And now, of course, the most critical issue is to get the negotiations to succeed so that peace can return to the world's youngest country. Now... This is one example of where the UN has been an essential part uh, of uh, an implementation process for a peace agreement and um, of establishing and supporting uh, a new country. <coughs> we are now in a situation where the UN will be essential to support a post-peace agreement process to try to foster peace and sustain it uh, in this country. The UN at 70 is facing enormous challenges on a number of fronts. This is one of them, and a very difficult one. 
It's one example. But the high-level panel on peace operations has been asked uh, to look at the complexity of challenges and to be bold and creative in proposing which critical steps can we take to make the UN more fit for purpose in facing these new challenges, the challenges of our time. Not only in, um, uh, in situations like that in South Sudan, but with the changed nature of con conflict across the globe. And this is what the panel is discussing at this point in time. And it is up to all of us when the panel comes out with its recommendations, all member states will review them and look at them. The Secretary General, of course, will have his opportunity to propose implementing um, measures. Now, when we have the opportunity on the 70th anniversary of the UN to make bold changes, then it is my hope that on this occasion, the 193 member states will pass the test and will not let um, their own politics uh, get ahead of what is the best for the United Nations as a whole and for all vulnerable people in the world, because after all, those are the ones we are here to serve. Thank you.